You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. So we started James, the letter of James, last week, so you can turn to James chapter 1. So we we did some introductory stuff, and then looked at the first eight verses. And so today we'll be looking at uh, 9 through 18 of the first chapter there. So um, <clears throat> we, we saw last week what, or that, not what, but that James, right? He regarded trials as being inevitable, right? He also uh, had, command, had the command uh, to consider or to count these circumstances as all joy. Not that it's necessarily joyful to go through those, but to know that you're in Christ and to know that your relationship with the Lord and uh, who, who you're going to be and uh, grow in maturity after that circumstance is going to bring joy and the joy of your salvation that's already taken place and what that gives you for eternity as well. So the more we understand how God uses trials and some say tests, and whether it's trials, tests, suffering, sickness, all of these things, right? We can just pile all those in. But the more we understand how God uses these in our life, the better prepared we will be to face them properly. And that endurance, that leads to the result of a complete maturity and a perfect uh, maturity, he said last week, I and mean, that was per- perfection in that sense, a maturity, a sanctification that takes place in our lives and our relationship with God. He also acknowledged that, that often the believer lacks wisdom to face these trials successfully. And he, he said that our Father in heaven is ready and willing to provide us with the needed wisdom only if we ask, right? If only we ask. And that if you want God to grant you that wisdom, to face trials, to learn stability, to rest in Him, you don't go seeking a hundred different answers rather than accepting His alone. We ask in faith, He said, not in doubt and not in a double-mindedness and an instability. That's, that's where we left off. So, We're going to start with verses 9 through 11, which says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, so here lowly is poor, 
right? Let, let the lowly brother, the poor brother, whenever we say humble or poor, we're talking about someone who lives on the low end of whatever spectrum which exists in any given community, okay? That person will be faced with this inward test. This inward test of how to understand those circumstances, maintain the proper attitude uh, while going through them, right? How, how do we show spiritual maturity as, as we contend with needs that we can't meet in this life? How does that person show Christ? That's, that's the issue there. J James, James takes, out, uh, your, uh, or takes satisfaction in, in the glory in, in spiritual riches, he's saying. Take the satisfaction, glory in your spiritual riches that you're going to have in the kingdom with, with, that, that comes with your spiritual maturity. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. And that's what Paul says in Colossians 3, 2. Then to the brother who finds himself with wealth, this it's still a trial. It's similar, but instead of inward, it could be outward. Don't glory or celebrate your earthly wealth. Find your satisfaction in remain, remaining humble before God. Right? Our, our humility should be our chief concern. Being proud, uh, if you will, of our, our humility. But riches and humility, though, are usually in opposition. Now, there's one thing to be said that throughout the years, it's always like, blessed is the poor, right? And then it, then it always says something about the, the rich people. It, a Christian, a poor Christian, a wealthy Christian, and they're one and the same when it comes to salvation, okay? They're one and the same when they're in Christ. They're one and the same in the body of Christ. It, it makes no difference. The issue is always what's going on with the heart, how the, how the person sees and receives the material types of possessions, right? If you love money and you want more of money than 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 more of God, that's the issue. Uh, if if you and that can go for the poor and the rich person, right? If your focus is on that, provision can come. Provision will come. God provides that. So there's this inward and these outward tests, and I think we both. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich, but the text here obviously is saying. Look on the Lord uh, and, and to the rich. Be, be humble before the Lord, all right? Uh, so James then compares the world's wealth to the beauty of the, the flowering grass. Now, which in the desert climate like Palestine, it didn't last very long. Have a rainy night. Have these amazing uh, flowers and stuff that spring up and they wither away super fast. So, on the scale of eternity, though, is what he's saying. And this is how quickly a rich man could could fade away in his pursuits. See, the the trials serve to remind the rich and the high that though they are comfortable in this life, it's still only this life. It fades. As the grass grows brown, as the flowers fade away, and that wilts and all that, it all fades away. So, you know, and, the, you know, most people don't even, when they have, have material, like, I'm rich compared to the poor people, right? <laughs> and I'm probably thinking, I'm not that, like, I don't have much money. 
but I have a house to live in. We have a car, right? Um, there are certain things in, in this world that I do like, like pens. You guys know I like pens. I collect <laughs> pens, but uh, it will fade away. The pens will all fade away. They'll, they'll someday will break down. They'll, they'll someday will corrode. Something will happen to them, right? It, it's only a fleeting moment in the joy that they bring. It's like kids and toys too, right? Sometimes they get a toy. They, they wanted that toy so bad. They get it. Something disappointing with it, you know. Or they get it and now it's the next one. I got that now. Now I need this, right? These are just fleeting in the scope of eternity, okay? And that's the point here is that if we put our life and our identity into these things, these things that will fade away, then we could fade away also. There's that potential of that, right? We could fade away also. So James moves forward then to his next lesson uh, on trials in, in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So he's turning his teaching to what the future holds for the one who faces trials successfully. The person who endures or perseveres through trials has this potential, he says, to experience the blessed life. Right? It's a lot like, um, it's like uh, this is uh, an outtake of the uh, Beatitudes are on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed is those, right? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under a trial. Okay, so blessed, though, it simply means spiritually happy. You're content, okay? You're content in life. So enduring trials results uh, in, in a peaceful and contented life because through those experiences, you have the resulting spiritual maturity that comes with it, then we gain the ability through Christ in us to see these circumstances entirely different. It's all new take on it, right? And this results into what is called here the crown of life. This is the crown that God has promised to those who love him. Now, this crown is not a symbol of salvation. We should know he's, he's writing to Christians. This isn't salvific, so it's not a symbol for that. The, in the Greek, it actually ref, reflects a, ma, a measure of faithful service. And I, I've mentioned this before. I, I won't pretend to know about this part, the part of what happens when we stand before the Lord, when we come face to face. And, and, and something does take place. We know there's this Bema seat, there's the judgment seat, and then there's a Bema seat. Bema stands for rewards. I don't, there's little to be said in scripture. So everything else, the teachings out there on this, um, I believe are just people placing things onto the text. All right, so it's only little is said about it in Scripture, okay? And because, but, but because of the, the Greek culture in certain words, it, it is often described as some sort of award or a reward ceremony that takes place, okay? But as far as this crown, this crown of life in verse 12, this is the crown for anyone who perseveres 
through to the end of a trial uh, that's been brought upon them in whatever way, which could test their love for Christ in some way. And it's not that you would fall out of love or stop loving Christ at all. Um, I, I try to be careful with my words there so people understand. And some may for a moment. Um, but but the, the more you're likely you are to go to the Lord and, and fall before the Lord and seek His wisdom, uh, the, the better you're going to persevere through that trial. The more uh, you're going to learn, the more maturity is going to be gained. So simply put, our steadfastness is rewarded with this crown of life as we demonstrate our love for Jesus by uh, resisting uh, a temptation because going out and, and trying to do things on our way would be um, giving in to a temptation. So this is what we start to, to get into here because it all in context goes together. So up to this point, James has been focused on how a Christian should address trials and that they are a way to uh, expose our degree of spiritual maturity. At this point, then, in a the letter, James needs to make an important distinction between these external tests, which could or could not be from God, um, or they're all from God according to some, like I, I said last week, you know, which I said I wasn't going to give you guys the answer to. So that's why I'm wording it like this. And then there's inward tests. There's temptations that are not, though. We know these inward tests and temptations are not the result of God's design. They are natural products of our sinful nature. So just like external tests, we face them best when we understand them with godly wisdom and respond to them accordingly. Uh, according to that wisdom. And if you know me, this is a big uh, thing that I uh, have uh, spoken on before. Okay, and I'll get into it in a second. So 13 through 15, you will let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. All right, this is so important, it seems like so many people miss this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he's, gonna, he's using this illustration of birth. James begins with the simple conditions, conditional statement first. Let no one say when he is tempted. Let no one say this. James doesn't say if, right, he, he is tempted, but when. So by using when, he's emphasizing the simple reality of temptations because we all have them, okay? Now, when we experience temptations, we could be confused about their source. But here it's simple. We cannot say God is placing this temptation before us as a trial or a test. Temptations do not originate with God. Most people have this tendency, a, a skewed tendency, you could call it an evil tendency, to blame God, right? There people blame God when they find themselves in, sort of, uh, in some sort of a trial. 
But by his very nature, God is unable to either be tempted in the sense that we are tempted, as James will explain, nor can he himself tempt anyone. All right. God himself is not tempted by evil. Another way to say it is that God has no experience with evil. He has no relationship with it. So when he says God is not tempted by evil, James means in the sense of succumbing to it. Okay. When I say there's no experience with evil, succumbing to it. Of course, he knows evil. He, he doesn't like it, obviously. <laughs> but he's, he's seen it. But he has no personal experience of succumbing to it. Okay? <clears throat> he does not give into evil. He does not participate in evil. Okay? So a, a, side, night he, a side note here would be on the distinction of these words and, and others that we find. Uh, teaching that Jesus was tempted, okay? He was tempted. And here the issue is whether God has ever come to know and experience evil by succumbing to temptation, and he hasn't. We know this. So how about God in Christ, right? We know Christ was 100% God, 100% man. We know he was tempted in the wilderness, but we also know from Hebrews that we have this high priest who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet, the, the big point, yet without sin. The issue there is whether God in Christ had opportunity to give in to temptations. The human part, the manly part, did, but he never took the opportunity. He was obedient to the Father. So our God is not tempted by evil and therefore he doesn't tempt us. He can't. Now, next part, the part that I've railed on many times. If people aren't blaming God, then they want to blame the devil, <laughs> right? It's always the devil for their trials, all the bad in their lives. I'm not going to say that there aren't evil forces, demonic forces, or no stuff like that at work, all right? But the devil can't be coming after me wreaking havoc on my life at the exact same moment that he's doing it to you because he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once like God is. He doesn't have those attributes, all right? You look at the worst thing that's going on right now, it's probably the Ukraine and Russia thing. So wouldn't the devil have to be over there doing that? trying to entice and lure them to do these things and kill people and, and, and all that? How could he be over here messing with me, <laughs> right? So it's always the devil. But however, some people would just use the devil as being evil or demonic forces. But here, these texts tell us something very different, though. There's no mention of the devil here. These texts are all about us. Us right? Temptations to sin is said to come from our own lust. And James, James even lines out an entire sequence here, a calculation by which temptations take a hold and then cause us to sin, all right? This lust draws us away, it entices us, and it takes many forms, now, to, to us today, the word lust is almost always used in a sexual content, right? But we know what lust in general means, I, I hope. James is speaking, speaking very, very broadly here because it describes all manner of desires that are outside of God's will. 
In the Greek, this is literally to lure with bait, okay? And that bait is something that's outside of ourselves. But something inside is attracted to that bait and just enough so that God's will is not met by that attraction. It's just like fishing, okay? It's simple. You want to break it down theologically? When we fish, or when we go fishing, we're lying to the fish. <laughs> Aren't we? Right? We put, you hide the hook with the bait. <laughs> You're saying, hey, tasty food, come and get the vittles, right? We bait them. The fish thinks, oh, look, I'm hungry. There's some food. Great, right? The bait is a danger to that fish despite the looks. All right? It's pretty simple. That's what James is saying here. Our lust is drawn to something. And, and, and please, I don't really mean you actually are a liar if you're a fisherman. So no. <laughs> you guys should know that. Our lust is drawn to something, right? We think is good in some way or beneficial in some way to us. But more often than not, we pretty much know that isn't good. We ought not to be doing that. But in some kind of, uh, in, in, it's some kind of a bait, though, that's built on a lie. And the lie is a part of what makes our drawing away turn to sin. Because we are choosing to accept that lie rather than God's wisdom and truth, which is His will for us. So as we give into our lust, we enjoy that bait. It may seem good for the moment, but the seed of sin now is starting to grow and it's just growing. So after lust has conceived, James says in verse 15, it gives birth to sin. And he's actually teaching that the true that, that the true sin of our lives is found in our response to lust. Not that temptation itself, you're going to be tempted and face temptation, but the true sin is found in the response to that. He compares it to the birth process. When sin is accomplished or birthed then, it brings forth death. It says it grows. Once sin is born, it takes on its own life. It takes on its own development. It's just like a child and, and then, then it grows into uh, death. It says, I'm going to look at it again there. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sounds uh, simplistic there. Many debate here about what death is. Sin, sin is death. And you, you read it through Romans uh, as well. But there's those that believe you can lose your salvation. They'll say here it's spiritual death. You walked away from God, so now, again, you are de dead spiritually. You'll have to be saved again. There's others um, <clears throat> who, who get rather extreme, and they suggest that while we cannot lose our salvation, it's God that brings forth a sudden end <laughs> to the believer, right? Um, and, and that's to say that God takes these people out. Uh, I came across this, uh, in my, and, I, and I'm aware of it. And it could be the case. Um, maybe, maybe there's a believer in a life of disobedience that God's going to end his life early. Some people don't want to hear that. 
I'm just letting you know the different takes on these things like I always do, okay? So death here is very much death, and it's, it, it is what they would say, and it's God that brings death as an earthly judgment, if you will. He ends your life early. But when I started to look up the Greek and its usage here in verse 15, it took the second definition that simply states that death here is being used metaphorically. And the definition said it brings misery to one's soul. So I, uh, whether it's an actual death, physical or spiritual, we do know that if you were to experience a spiritual or a physical, you're going to have misery in there, right? You think about living a life in sin, and then sin grows, and then once you give in to that bait, and, and you do it once, and then you do it twice, and then you do it, th- it's just like a drug, right? There's conviction in you. If there's not conviction, Paul tells Timothy, it's as if you seared your conscience, therefore you don't feel convicted because you don't think there's anything wrong with what you're doing. <clears throat> you don't feel bad about that sin anymore, so you've, it's like searing your conscience with a hot iron, but there's still a lot of things that come along with it because a lot of people don't want certain people to know. There's a lot of lying, a lot of covering up, a lot of hiding, right? This is This is high stress anxiety now that you <laughs> which is misery to the soul so whichever take you take on it you can know here that it's still going to involve some misery to one's being this is a misery that arises from sin okay and james then he offers encouragement and he offers a path away from this course of sin and misery 16 through 18 Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So don't take the bait, right? Don't take the bait. The deception that our lusts lead uh, to good things is a lie. It can hurt us. Don't accept the lie. Rather, know the truth. It always comes back to know the truth, right? Every letter we go through, know the truth. Know God's word. Know what he says about this, right? We should accept no true, no true goodness from the fallen, our fallen nature, Okay? We should accept no true goodness from anyone else's fallen nature from this world who would be out there willing to entice us. So the the giving of good things always originates in the kingdom of God. It comes from heaven. It comes from God. And the good things you you receive have all come from heaven. Simply put, anything that is truly good is of God. Therefore, it must originate with him and be given by him. God's goodness is constant too. There's no variation with him. Instead of shadows, God is a father of lights. And it actually says here in the literal, the father of the lights. 
The specific lights here are the celestial bodies that light up the sky both day and night. The sun, the moon, the stars, all the stuff it never turns off. Even when we can't see them. Even so, there is never a shadow with God. He never, never a variation with him. He's forever, he's forever the same. Always will be God. God never changes. James is reminding, reminding us that God created everything in the known universe and beyond, right? We're finding new galaxies all the time. It blows my mind. Is it not weird? Like, I say this all the time. People just think I'm weird. Is it not weird to you that the sun is just like this big ball of gas and fire and lava, and it's just there warming <laughs> giving life to things it's just there and if we were just if anything were just to be moved the slightest bit everything would be off right how how can we just say well it just big bang happened and there's like these weird microbes and came out of the water and turned into a lizard and then turned into a monkey and here we are He never changes. He, he created all of this. Everything. Everything in the universe. Especially that light that represents His goodness. And there's no variation in His nature. He could never shift from being light to being a shadow is what He's saying. Like never, never. We, we, can, we can trust God to be our source of good and to know that if something is evil or tempting us to sin, then it isn't of God. And then we should have the wisdom and the knowledge to go to before the Lord to help us get through that trial. So James has clarified okay, that the source of our inward trials, our temptations to sin, is not, not God, nor the devil, but our own lusts. So the wisdom we need to face to face these inward trials successfully is to first recognize its course. The, our flesh is the source of evil. Secondly, we must understand that God is the source of the good or for the good and the perfect. He is the complete works that we seek to do instead of succumbing to these temptations. Praying for the wisdom to face these um, uh, temptations will be answered, as James said earlier. And it will be answered with good gifts to overcome the trial. Gifts in the form of the mind and the attitude of Christ who dwell in us because of the Holy Spirit in us. But it's our active participation in this process that is imperative Right, that James is placing on us here. Our active participation. Then in verse 18, James proves God's willingness to step into our lives and our sinful lives to transform us. He's transformed us into new cre 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 <laughs> creations. I was going to say creatures and then creations came out. He's transformed us into that, those, right? That's describing uh, our new birth. James says, it was the exercise of God's will that brought us forth and brought us here to this moment. 
And that term brought forth is a, uh, it's, it's childbirth. So James is describing our new birth, our being born again, the way we were born again. And, and it happened as a result because God willed it. He called you. He drew you. He chose you. He was the person who performed that, that birthing process. So we see God's goodness in our salvation as he initiated our salvation according to his own will. He brought us forth to spiritual life by, by his word of truth. So in closing, James' James's encouragement then to us is to trust that if God started something in us, he must be prepared to continue that work, right? He's going to see it through. We could take hope and encouragement by that. And then we seek his wisdom. We seek his intervention in the times of temptations, trusting that he will answer those prayers to bring us to, out of that moment. But it's our willful, willful response to him that's a part of that process as well. Okay. Any questions, comments, disagreements?